We continue in Mark's Gospel today, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. If you were with us last week, we are hot on the heels of a hard teaching on divorce that Ron preached about. And we come to another hard teaching from Jesus, but this time with regards to how to obtain eternal life. The hard teachings of Jesus are, in the words of the pastor Tim Keller, they're like hard candy. And they have to be chewed on, they have to be sucked on, they have to be savored, otherwise they break our teeth. There are really three layers to this hard candy for us to work through today. And the first layer is this, it's going to be our first point. We are all on a quest for eternal life. The second layer is this, it's an impossible quest. And the third and final layer is a secret, and I'm going to keep it till the end. Before we get started, let's pray. And ask the Lord to bless our time. Jesus, we love you. Be with our time together today. Open our hearts to your word that we might receive it with joy. Holy Spirit, move. Soften our hearts that the word might take root. Be with my stammering tongue. I pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Follow along with me as we read God's word. This is, again, Mark 10, 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said them yet again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for the sake and for my gospel. You will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Before I got into ministry, I used to think that the average person who would resist the gospel would be those who said something like, I'm so bad. I'm just so bad. I could never have such good news. It's too good. How could God love me? I am so bad. I thought that's who I was going to encounter all the time. In fact, in today's culture, this has been the opposite of what I've encountered. I rarely find anyone who thinks they're a bad person at all. 99% of the time they say this, they say, I'm so nice and I'm so good. I I don't, why do I need that good news? What, What do I need to be saved from anyways? If God exists, he knows I'm nice. He knows I'm a good person. He'll look at me and say, well, they were always nice. 
That's why this encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler may be one of the most important conversations for us to have in 2022. Because you see, the gospel is not just for those, those vile sinners who exist out there in the deepest, darkest, you know, they're out there and they're evil and they're just looking to do sin. The gospel is for those in here with un- unimpeachable characters. You are nice people. You are good people, but you have not Christ. It's for those people as well. You see, I have an invitation for these people, and it's as honest and it's as earnest as I do for the vilest of sinners. And my desire is that you may be saved and by God's grace inherit eternal life. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about men and women who are lost in niceness. And he says this, he says, we've been talking as if Christianity was something nasty people needed and nice people could afford to do without. And as if niceness was all that God demanded. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. With this in mind, let's chew on this hard candy a bit. Let's look at the interaction between this young man and Jesus. You see, first thing, this man is on a quest. He's on a quest. He runs up with haste. He falls to his knees. He kneels before Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place this story in connection with the story we talked about last week, with with Jesus and the little children who have been brought to him. This suggests that perhaps the young ruler has heard about Jesus, he's known Jesus, he's been watching from afar, and he sees the goodness of Jesus. Let the little children come to me. And the young ruler thinks, if this is his character... If this is the way Jesus is, I'm going to come. If the children are welcome, then I'll be welcomed. So he comes boldly. And then we're told from the text that he's a rich young ruler. So we know something about him already. He's, he's wealthy. He has prestige. He has authority. He's religious. He's a ruler in the synagogue. He's probably healthy. He's probably good looking. We know a lot about him. If, if you had a daughter, this is the type of guy you'd want her to bring home, Right? If he came to this church, we would, we'd rush him through the new members program. He might be a deacon within a month, right? We'd have, we'd have him here. We want this guy. But we judge based on outward appearances. And God judges the heart. And so Jesus, like the good physician that he is, he starts diagnosing the patient. He starts immediately working on the young man. Verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, this young man comes on his quest for eternal life, and he falls at the feet of Jesus, and his first initial thought of Jesus being good is somehow closer than he even knows. He's come closer to his quest being done than he even realizes at the moment. This man seemingly has it all, and yet he comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I lack something. Jesus, my my moral portfolio is missing a page. 
What is it? I've, I've, I just know there's something missing. Jesus, I've seen you at work. What is it? You see, there's a quest for eternal life, and it's far more widespread than any of us here can possibly even imagine. Ecclesiastes 3.11, a very familiar verse. It says this, He has put, God has put or planted, eternity into man's heart. And because this is true of all mankind, that passion, that desire for eternal life, is present within all of us. This quest for eternal life, this eternal longing that we all have, it finds a million different means of expression. You see people try to express it through art and music and style, and they're looking for this this thing, this lack. And it's unworthy, and it's it's often fruitless. This quest for eternal life is the panting necessity of every human soul. It's the thing for which the soul hungers for more than anything else in the world. And when this realization dawns on humans that we belong not only to this gravity-bound dust, but that the soul was made for vast, substantial, and limitless planes of eternity, it rocks people's world. And then the quest emerges... And that passion for eternal life, it rises to the surface. And you'll hear people say, what's the meaning of life? Why are they asking that question? Because they have eternity hidden in their hearts. And they know there's got to be more than what they're doing. I'm lacking something. What's the the meaning of this life? What's my purpose here? Or what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's mark this young man well. He's wealthy. He's sober. Sober-minded, a man of position, he has authority, yet when he's held himself up to Jesus, he's held his moral standard of goodness and niceness up to Jesus, and it's, his, it's garbage. It's garbage in comparison to this truly good teacher, and it spills out. Good teacher. He can't help it. It just He sees him and he says, he's good. This is good. And so Jesus diagnoses him. Why do you... Call me good. You see, Jesus says there's a flaw in your idea of goodness. There's a flaw in your idea of being made right before God, being justified before God. Jesus is saying, you've never met me, and yet you called me good. Don't you know only God is good? What are you saying? Do you understand what you're saying by what you just said? His entire system of morality is flawed. That's Jesus telegraphing his punch. He's saying, I'm about to lay you out with what I'm going to say, and I want your own words to do it. He's saying, you are about to make a decision about who I am before this conversation is over. And when you make that decision, it will either end your quest for eternal life or you'll leave. Then Jesus employs the second table of the Ten Commandments in his answer. He's going to further diagnose this man. He's going to say, let's look at your goodness. Our Lord makes no reference to the first four commandments yet. Because he's just going to say, let's look at you based on your human relationships. He says, have you stolen? Have you lied? Have you defrauded? Is that how you got your wealth? And the man replies with this wonderful, it's, it's a resounding and honest no. 
His answer is immediate. All this I have done since I was a little kid. With all his wealth, he's acted justly. He's been kind. He, he has been a good person. And, and you can read that and you go, well, he's, you know, what? A, no, he's wrong. Of course he's wrong. I don't think he's being funny. I don't think he's being prideful. I think he's being sincere. I think he literally is saying, I'm a good person. Jesus, I do my best. I go to church twice a week. I follow all the religious things. I am doing my I am a good person, Jesus. Listen to Paul. This is Paul in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. He says this. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul says, I was this guy. I, I, if anyone wanted to boast about their goodness, about their niceness, I would have been the first in line. Because based on the law, I was nailing it. Jesus doesn't call him out as a liar, does he? He accepts the answer. And then we're told this beautiful statement. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved this young man. You see, just having money, just accumulating wealth in itself, this is not really this man's problem. That's not the core of his problem. His real problem is with the commandments Jesus didn't mention. That's the first four commandments. The first commandment calls mankind into a direct relationship with God. Right? It calls us to worship the Lord. The second commandment insists we don't aid ourselves in that worship. Do not put an idol between you and God. Come as you are. You and God, come to me. Then the third is a natural outcome of that obedience. The hallowing of God's name. If you are worshiping the Lord, no idols, you are going to hallow his name. And then the fourth is the keeping of the Sabbath day. Now you see, this is where the young man failed. Because he had failed to honor the Lord. He had failed to not worship idols. He had made money and possessions his center, his idol in his life. He had failed to love God more than his stuff. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, so let's continue. Jesus accepts the young man's credentials. Then he delivers the knockout punch. Verse 21, you lack one thing. You can imagine him. Yes. Here it is. What must I do? What's the one thing? Do I need to go do this? Do I need to go do that? Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The pastor, Alistair Begg, gives the illustration of going to a doctor for a routine visit. You know, you go for a checkup and you go to the doctor. You say, hey, doc, it's just me. I'm here for my routine visit. You know, we're scheduled here. Everything's great. I'm healthy. Nothing's wrong. Let's get this over with. The doctor says, okay, yeah, sure. You know, he starts feeling around. Oh, hmm. Oh, I see. And before long, you're going, what do you see? Why are you making those noises? You know, what's going on? Why are you, what's going on here? And before long, the doctor's pressing and you start going, oh, oh, I see, I see. He's hit the spot. And not everything is perfect as you thought, is it? 
There's something wrong with you. And only the doctor could hit the spot and tell you it weren't perfect as you thought. Now, why does the doctor do that? Why does the doctor feel around? Why does the doctor take your blood pressure? Why does the doctor take your temperature? Because there's something wrong. And because they care about you. Does the doctor do it to hurt you, to shame you? You need to lose weight. Is that to shame you? It's to expose the problem, to target the illness. Think of Jesus and the woman at the well. Go, Jesus says. Call your husband. Is that to shame her? He puts the finger on the spot. And she goes, I have no husband. What about Zacchaeus? A little man hiding up in a tree. Zacchaeus, I see you up there. Come down so we can all laugh at you. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. He puts the finger on the spot. Because he wants us to feel the lack. He wants us to feel the ache. He loves us. Why does he put his finger on the spot for this young man? We're told he loved him. He loved him. The truth of the illness is better than the lie of the slow death. You lack one thing, Jesus says. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You see, Jesus is saying you've put your faith in wealth. It's an idol. And your effort to try to remove the stain of sin all on your own, based on your own goodness, your own niceness, all your own work, it's alienating you from the very God you want to worship. You are worshiping an idol rather than the Yahweh, the Yahweh, the God of your fathers. Money for this young man had become the center of his identity. The thought of losing that sent him away sad. Now, we need to stop here for a second and marvel at this. Because he went away sad. He went away sad. He met Jesus and he went away sad. Nowhere else in Scripture is Jesus met with this response. He's met with people who leave mad. He's met with people who leave happy and whole and healed but never sad. Now, why does, why does this man leave sad? Because Jesus put his finger on the spot, and I think the young man knew it. He didn't want the diagnosis. He didn't, he didn't want to hear that. He thought, there has to be something I can do other than that. And Jesus said, no, that's, that's it. That's the cure. That's the medicine. And so he leaves sad because we're told he had great possessions. Consider what Jesus was doing with this with this word to this man. He was calling him to an abandonment so complete that obedience would be equivalent to worship for him. And please don't miss the implications of this this hard word from Jesus. You see, we quote these words, come and follow after me, come and follow after me, come and follow. We quote that so often. And, And the implications of it are numb to us in our own lives. These are kingly words. These are imperial words. These are autocratic and absolute commands from a king. And Jesus Christ is saying, if I'm not a good man, if I'm not more than just a man, then what I've just told this young ruler is blasphemy. You see, he's asked this man to break the second commandment. Give up everything you love, everything you have, follow me. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to follow God alone. 
If he's just a good teacher like this man says, and not the God-man, not God-made flesh, then he commands all of us here today to willingly break the law of God. And so we have to wrestle with that word. Why do you call me good? Nobody but God is good. You see what Jesus is claiming for himself? Sell everything you have, all that binds you to this world. Come to me. Jesus says, would you find the solution? Would you find the solution to eternal life? Would you end your quest here and now? One thing you lack. And all you're searching, all your lifetime, you're so young. This could be it. But one thing you lack. It wasn't morality. It wasn't the outward parts of religion. It wasn't orthodoxy. He was not a doubter. He was not a skeptic. He believed in eternal life. He wanted eternal life. He had zeal. He had passion. What did he lack? It was full surrender of his heart to God through Jesus Christ. Now this means that the same kind of trial here for this man is for now you and I. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? He's saying to us today, Jesus is saying, give up your idol. What is it? Now I pause a moment here. You may search your mind. What is your idol? But I'm telling you that if you are not loving God, then you are loving something else. And whatever it is that you love more than God is that idol. You cannot serve two masters. Whatever your present master is must be cast out. Now you're going to say, well, this isn't a problem for me. I'm not rich. <laughs> Got it. I'm done. I'm not rich. Ha ha. This is when Christ must turn his hands upon us. And he starts placing to feel the spot. Quit your job. Follow after me. Give up your addiction and follow after me. Abandon your adulterous relationship. Repent and follow after me. Give up your hate, your resentment. Stop living in the past. Follow after me. Stop wasting your Sunday mornings with sleep and frivolity and worship me. Get rid of your phone because it's wasting your time and follow me. Stop obsessing over your favorite sports team and follow me. Stop chasing safety and security and follow me. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Did any of that hit the spot? Did it get close? May God in his infinite grace tear down our idols. Now there's a question I ask myself as I read this account. Maybe you asked it. I I don't know the answer. Did this man inherit eternal life? I pray he did. I pray he did. I think he did. I think he did because Jesus loved him. You see, I like this young man. I think Jesus evidently liked him. But where scripture is silent, we should be careful. But the more pressing question to me, the more pressing question to you is not about this guy. It's this. Will the man or woman I've been talking about today, who's watching online, who's hearing this later, will they be saved? This is the question. That's the most important question you can ask yourself. Will you surrender your life to Christ? Will you be lost in your niceness? Are you banking on your goodness? If you're counting on all of your goodness being good enough, I'm telling you today, it won't be. It won't. Because nobody's good. 
You heard Jesus say it. Nobody's good except God alone. Which leads to our second point. It's an impossible quest. It's an impossible quest. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? In our day and age, there's a a growing hatred uh, for those who are wealthy, individuals, corporations, you name it. If you have money, we don't like you. That's because uh, people tend to think if you have money, if you have wealth, you stepped on others to get there, right? Everyone hates wealthy people until you're the wealthy person. Then you love it. <laughs> you, know, you love it. Everyone wants to be rich. And they don't like others who are rich. But back in Jesus' time, this wasn't the case. The disciples didn't celebrate this young man walking away. They didn't, they didn't go, yeah, Jesus, we got him. You know, take that, rich guy. That's because wealth wasn't seen as evil. It was a gift. They thought it was a gift from God. And so if you were doing really well, they thought, well, you're living a moral life. And so the disciples are thinking, if this rich hotshot who has everything going for him, who's been blessed by God, if he can't make it in the kingdom, what's a poor fisherman to do? They respond this way because Jesus has this illustration. He has this illustration about a camel going through the eye of the needle. Now, it's so funny when you read commentaries about this because everyone, you know, it's a very simple illustration, but people are trying to bend it and twist it. And some say, well, it's not really a literal needle. You see, the gates of Israel, they were very tiny. And so you had to, you know, try to fit a camel through. And you, okay, well, that may be the case, whatever. And somebody says, no, 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 the word, the Aramaic word for camel Well, it sounds like blah, 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 you know, and they go off of these things. I don't, I think the context is so crucial because Jesus has just left little children. He's just left little children and we're told he's starting out on his journey. Maybe the children are still with him. Maybe they're still there. And with this in mind, he says, children, hey, kids, can can a camel fit through the eye of a needle? And all the kids go, no. Jesus, no. It's like your grandfather going, you know, that guy doesn't stand a snowball's chance in Florida. Because it's hot in Florida. It's comical. And Jesus is saying, this is so simple. It's so simple. Do you know how hard it would be to put a camel through the eye of a needle? Well, yeah, it's impossible, Jesus. That's the point. With man, it's impossible. And so Jesus is saying, That money that you love so much, those possessions can become an idol. It's so easy for it to become a god to us. It's not a sin to be rich, just as it's not a blessing to be monetarily poor. And the problem for this man is not so much money as it is what it does to his heart. Our heart's the problem. It's the inside out that's the problem. I remember being in youth group. I taught in this passage and I said, who here has a dollar bill? And one of the kids said, I got a dollar. So I said, thank you. And I took it and I go, Whoosh. and they go, oh. you know, you can, hear, you can hear a pin drop in the room. Did he really just rip it? Yeah, I ripped a dollar bill. 
And I said, what level of monetary value would that, you know, what would that have to be for you to rush up here and stop me, physically stop me? $20 bills, $100 bills. And one kid yells out, I nearly died when you ripped the $1 bill. What would make you gasp? $100 bill if I ripped it? $200? Then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? One last thing before we move to our final point. The quest for eternal life, when it's done upon the human level, the human effort alone, it's hopeless, it's helpless. I want to complete that quotation. Ecclesiastes 3.11. You may not know the completion of it, but listen to this. It's a wail, it's a cry of despair from man's inability to save himself. He has put eternity into man's heart. That's usually where we stop. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In a sentence, that's both the passion and the paralysis of every human heart. Eternity planted, set within the heart of mankind. It creates desires. We want to know where we came from. We want to know where we're going. It's a desire to interpret the deep magic. We want to know the strange mysteries of life and of love. And yet it says God hid it. He hid it in our heart so that we would be restless forever. Restless until with the one thing we lack, the one thing we need most of all things, is Him. And He says, come to me and fill it. Come to me and, and see it. Who can be saved? Our final point, the quest for eternal life. This is the secret. This is the spoiler. It begins and ends with Christ. Notice very quickly, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God three times between verses 23 and 25. This was the ultimate subject of the whole thing. The kingdom of God. How does one enter into the kingdom of God? He's asking the disciples, what was that man's problem? What did he refuse to do? He refused to enter into the kingdom. He refused to come like a little child in faith and in trust. And when that man refused to follow after Jesus, he refused the God of the kingdom's invitation. He refused the very thing that would have given him rest in the first place. How does one attain eternal life? It's not by wealth. It's not by power. It's not by beauty. It's not by religious observance. What is it? Jesus says, you must enter into the kingdom and I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This young ruler with God would have been enabled to do the impossible thing. He would have been enabled to enter into the kingdom of God. This is the divine miracle. This is the great exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is God taking the camel, threading the needle. The camel fits through the needle with God. And the Bible says when a sinner repents, when he casts down his idols, when he follows after Christ, that's a miracle. That is a dead person coming back to life, being brought to life by God. We are saved by God, from God, for God, to God. 
This is not from yourself. It is a gift from God. We have to turn to Peter, poor Peter, sweet, sweet, precious Peter. <laughs> Listen to his takeaway. All of this. He's seen this all. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. <laughs> oh, Peter. You can imagine patting Jesus on the shoulder. Well, you lost that one. <laughs> but at least you have us. We gave up everything to follow you, Jesus. How about that? Peter, read the room, brother. Read the room, man. Come on. But our Lord is kind. Our Lord is so kind. He says, in effect, do you think, Peter, sweet Peter, do you think you could give up anything I wouldn't return to you a hundred times over? No one has ever said no to something for my sake and not discovered in me a hundred times more than they gave up. And he, sent, he ends by this, again, placing his finger on the spot. Now he's going to look at the disciples and he's going to place his finger on the spot. The first should be last, will be last and the last will be first. And so in the immortal words of Han Solo, don't get cocky. Don't start resting in your own niceness, your own sacrifice. Jesus, have you seen what I've done today? Don't start thinking you are owed anything. You already have everything. If you have Christ, you are, have already entered into the kingdom. Everything that is Christ the King is yours. How little we know of giving up for Christ. How little we know. So little. And yet the measure in which we have known anything of giving up for Christ is the same measure in which we know what it is to possess everything in Jesus Christ. Patrick Henry, the famous founding father, shortly before his death, he said this. He said, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There is one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that, I had not given them a single shilling. They would have been rich. And if they had not that, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. Beloved, what I'm trying to hammer home is that Jesus is talking about us, isn't he? He's talking about us. And as long as we think Jesus is talking about those people, or your neighbor, or the bad people downtown, we will fail to take heed lest we fall. We will fail to plant hedges and build fences around ourselves to protect us from idols and from our sin and from the schemes of the devil. And God forbid we will fail to enter the kingdom because we won't think we lack for anything. We'll eventually just stop going to Jesus and go say, Do I, am I missing anything, Jesus? No, I have it all. I got it. I got it. As we close, I want to take Jesus' teaching as a whole. What is eternal life? This is John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How can they? With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Eternal life, therefore, consists in the proper relationship of your soul to God. And that experience of the soul finding and following and savoring Jesus Christ is the ultimate experience anyone will ever have in their entire life. It's a soul that in the midst of death begins to live. It's a soul that in the midst of sorrow sings. 
And while the terrifying mists of darkness surround all about, we see light and high beauty piercing through the clouds. I close with the remarkable verse again. I want you to hear it. I want you to savor this. This is the hard candy. Suck on this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Why was Jesus' heart filled with love for this man? Why does Mark care? Why does Mark take the time to, to let us know the inner workings, the inner thoughts and feelings of our Lord? Why does he want us to know? Why this explicit statement of love? Do you know how rare that is in the Gospels? Do you know how rare it is to see that, that Jesus loved somebody like this? Again, the pastor Tim Keller, he says this. He says, it's because Jesus looks at this young man and identifies with him. You see, Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who is richer than this man than all of us could ever possibly imagine. And Jesus has lived in the glory of heaven. He's been surrounded by worshiping angels. He's existed from all eternity in Trinitarian love. But he left it all behind. He left all the wealth behind for our sake. He became poor. And you say, why? <laughs> Why? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He's heading towards the cross. We're almost there. It's a poverty of the soul. It's a pain. It's a trial deeper and more real than any of us will ever know. Any of us understand. And yet he gives it all away. For God so loved the world that he gave. So he looks at the young man, he looks at me, he looks at you. Despite our deep need, despite our deep lack, despite our sin. And if we had a Bible, if we were in the Bible, he said, he loved us. While we were yet sinners, it says, Christ loved us. And he's saying to all of us today, I'm merely asking you what I've already done in your place. I'm not asking anything of you that I haven't already done for you. So follow me. So follow me. Enter the kingdom. Obtain eternal life. You see, the law for us, the law for that young man, it can change our behavior. It can make us very nice little people. It can make us good boys. It can make us good girls. But it can't change our heart. It can't make us justifiably good before God. You can't remove the stain of sin by your good works. But Jesus says, impossible with man, possible with God. God's grace can do it. And it's precisely when you see Jesus as the king on the cross who dies in your place that all of this starts to make sense. All the dominoes start falling. All of it falls into place. You see, it's the love of Christ that compels us now to love my spouse and to love my children. And to love others. To love my neighbor as this. It's the poverty of Christ that changes the way I view money. I can now rip up a dollar bill. Who cares? It's just money. It's the scars of Christ that change the way we will view our bodies. Change the way we interact with one another. How we value each other. And it's the cross of Christ. His gospel that will change the entire world. Do you believe it? I pray, Jesus, 
would melt down your idols today. Give them up, follow after him, or have I come a bit too close to touching the spot? Will you leave this place sad and disheartened and go, I can't go back. I can't go back. He got too close. He was this close to to opening the closet. He was this close to exposing my sin. I don't want to feel that again. I'm going to leave. That Christ demands too much of me. So we say, Holy Spirit, gracious God, let it not be so. Turn to Christ away with your deadly doing. Turn to Christ away with your sin. Turn to Christ here and now and end your quest for eternal life. Would you do it? Let's pray.